Hello and welcome to The Lowdown, an insider's look at stories touching our lives here on Cape Cod and beyond. My name is Ira Wood, and you're listening to us today on WOMR 92.1 FM Provincetown, WFMR 91.3 FM Orleans, and streaming worldwide on WOMR.org. We live in a society that, despite all rhetoric to the contrary, can be profoundly unfair. To be a woman can be a life sentence to violence and inferior status. To be a person of color, to have sexual preferences that are not defined as heteronormal. To be born across our borders can be a de facto conviction to poverty and humiliation. Yet throughout history, the identities of the heroes versus the villains, the good people versus the creeps who perpetuate the unfair system have been obscured. Just like the system itself can act as a blurry cover for the injustice, kind of like a creeping fog. My guest today is the author of a new book of essays that names both the creeps and the ever-creeping miasma in which many people Many women and Latin people find themselves enveloped. Miriam Gerba is a writer and artist. She's the author of the award-winning true crime memoir, Mean, which was named one of the best LB- LGBTQ books of all time. Her essays have appeared in the Paris Review, Time Magazine, and the LA Times, among many publications. Today we'll be talking about creep accusations and confessions. Miriam Gerba, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you. It's both my honor and pleasure. So you begin the book with a kind of morbid childhood game, that is, throwing Barbie dolls out the window, (laughs) then Uh transition to another game, one with higher stakes, little boys pushing a tricycle with a dummy on it into a busy intersection. Uh Then we transition to the famous beat writer, William Burroughs, who Uh shot and killed his wife while playing a game with a handgun. The games go on. The title of the chapter is Tell. Can you talk about what you're attempting to tell the reader through this escalating cascade of deadly games? Absolutely. So um, the collection Creep um, has a title essay that's placed at the end, um, and that was done very strategically. That essay is supposed to serve as a capstone. And the first essay, Tell, is setting the tone that is going to help shepherd the reader toward um, that capstone account in Creep. And I am um, playing with the word tell because I do... I do write about Joan Vollmer, who was um, a beat woman and uh, the wife of William Burroughs. And Burroughs famously claimed to have killed uh, Vollmer during a game of uh, William Tell Gone Wrong. And I wanted to begin the collection by invoking femicide, which is the killing of a woman because of misogyny. Sometimes people will describe femicide as the killing of a woman because she's a woman, but that puts the onus back on the woman, and I want to put the onus on the misogynist. And so what I'm attempting to do is to tell uh, Vollmer's truth um, and 
uh, and sing her praises. And I'm attempting to do that for so many women who have been um, victimized uh, by misogyny and and who have fallen victim to femicide. I'm attempting to uh, uh, restore them to main character status so that they don't become uh, footnotes in men's narratives. And William Burroughs himself looked at as as a hero of the beats is the primary creep in the chapter. Uh, And that's just so beautiful. Yeah, thank you. Yes, he he emerges as the primary creep. Though what I do attempt to do is, is demonstrate who he took, because so often when his story is told or when Vollmer's story is told, um, uh, Burroughs eclipses her and and her execution. I, I think of what happened to her not as an accident, but as an execution. Um, I think I think that I, uh, you know, it, it it often eclipses her life, and so I attempt to to uh, render um, uh, her biography in brief through that essay. So there are many creeps in the book. Um, uh-huh. William Burroughs is only number number one numerical creep, <laughs> <laughs> creepy violent men, and I I have to say there are a lot of creepy women as Absolutely. well. Uh, but late in the book, you introduce the concept of the creeping fog, a kind of yes. soft and swaddling crowd that envelops us, you know, like family and community and relationships, Absolutely. and how this benign entity uh, surrounds us, and how many women queer women, women of color, most women really have to contend with this fog. How'd you come up with this wonderful memoir? I mean, metaphor, rather. Um, So when I was working on the book, um, I knew that the title essay had to be um, really strong and really taut and close to finished before I worked on the preceding essays. And... um, And I wanted to incorporate horror motif into that title essay, Creep. Creep is about my experience of intimate partner violence. And I think that that in order to really communicate to my reader what the experience of IPV was like, I need to to take them through sort of the the haunted house that that I lived in, if, or the house of horrors that I lived in. And so, um, as I was working on that on that essay, I considered many different horror devices and horror tropes, and the fog is one of those. And so, I wanted to take this sort of um, this sort of sinister weather. Um, that occults, that obscures, that oozes, that seeps. And I wanted to place myself and various villains and villainous institutions within it. And I thought that the fog was ideal for discussing intimate partner violence because fog is soft and fog swaddles you. And um, and when a person experiences intimate partner violence, romance is used to trap us and romance is used to swaddle us. And ultimately, romance is used to suffocate and kill some of us. And so I thought that the fog worked really well in order to communicate that sort of romantic horror that I experienced. So many books of personal essays stick to the intimate details of the writer's life, which you do. But mm-hmm. your book is so rich 
with history and and taught me so much about the Mexican American experience, really more than any book I've ever read. Um, and and it, and what's very generous of you is that at the end of the book you give an afterward, which is a uh, which is an enormous source of books to read. Mm-hmm. So talk about your decision to include so much history as well as your personal life. Um. For me, history is often an entry point into an essay. And so rather than approaching uh, an essay um, with myself and my experiences as the starting point, what I'll often do is sort of survey the history of a topic or survey the history of a subject. And then And then I'll attempt to situate myself and often situate my family within that history. And and so my personal history then becomes melded to those um, uh, macro histories. And and, and that tends to be my approach toward um, toward the personal essay. It's one in which I'm in conversation with history. And uh, I am a former teacher um, and I taught history. Um, and I come from a family of of people who very much appreciate history and who are history nerds. So, so it's a discipline to which we're very devoted. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood and WOMR. Today we're talking about the ugliness of racism, domestic violence, and imperialism, and how its practices and enablers are often hidden. My guest is award-winning author Miriam Gerba. Her new book is Creep, Accusations, and confessions. So this subject, this this particular thing I'm going to ask you about blew my mind. Sure. When we hear the name of the chemical hydrogen cyanide, also known as Zyklon B, we immediately think of the Holocaust and its use as an exterminating gas in the Mexican in the German concentration camps. Many years before the Holocaust, it was used in a different kind of concentration mm-hmm. camp in El Paso, Texas. Yes. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. So uh, in an essay titled Itchy, I um, I trace a particular history of moral hygiene. And I do that through an anecdote that was shared with me by a student. Um, I had a student visit me at lunchtime one day. He came into my classroom and he was uh, eating lunch with me. And he shared with me that um, he was uh, really upset by a comment that a teacher had made. And uh, he told me that his teacher seemed to uh, dislike or even hate um, Mexican students. And, and I asked my student how he knew that. And he told me that he had removed his hat when he had visited her classroom and she had immediately snapped at him that he needed to put it back on. And I found that really strange because one of our school rules was when a student enters a classroom, they need to remove their hat. And here's the teacher telling a student to do the opposite. When the student asked why, the teacher said, you're Mexican and Mexicans have lice and I don't want you spreading that in my classroom. And I asked the student if he thought maybe it it perhaps wasn't a joke that landed well. And he explained, no, it wasn't a joke because the teacher proceeded to explain that she had prevented her own children from playing with um, Mexican-American children because she didn't want them getting lice from those from those children. So I was in incredibly bothered by the the flagrant racism and xenophobia that was expressed um, by this woman toward a student. 
And what I then did was I used that as an entry point um, into an essay where I survey this history of moral hygiene and uh, the, the, the history of the stereotype of the Mexican as filthy and dirty. And there's this association historically that was developed um, of us with life. We're sort of um, we're typified as as these filthy people who who infect others uh, with lice, and so I traced the history of this trope. And when I was um, tracing that history, um, my research brought me to El Paso, to a fumigation station where um, uh, Mexicans crossing the border into the United States were fumigated for lice with um, a chemical that would eventually be used um, in uh, Nazi concentration camps to exterminate Jews. And um, and we we know those of us uh, who have studied world war 2 know that uh, one of the comparisons that the third reich made um in order to dehumanize jews was was to compare them to lice and so i wanted to contextualize what that teacher had said uh in terms of uh sort of pathways to genocide hmm. Okay, we're going to move on here. That's quite a heavy story. Stop me in my tracks when I read it. Okay, Joan Didion is one of America's yeah. most de decorated writers, celebrated for her emotional detachment, ironic observation, and the fact that she celebrates her family's pioneer roots in Sacramento. In mm -hmm. fact, as as we talked about before we started, uh, the New York Times this past week came out with a list of books that said how to understand California, and her book uh, was in it, her book that you mm -hmm. that you reference in the book. But you write that what irks you about Joan Didion's writing is its racial grammar, which was identical to the racial grammar that shaped your own upbringing in the Santa Maria Valley. Can you explain what you mean by racial grammar? Yes. So racial grammar is a term that was developed by um, so that was developed by a sociologist, um, Eduardo um, Bonilla Silva, and he used the term in order to describe the very subtle ways that uh, racism structures our social interactions. And through social intercourse, we, un we come to understand um, uh, racist hierarchy. Um, for example, uh, in Didion's first novel, um, characters are seated around a dinner table and a white rancher is describing to his teenage daughter um, the, the laziness of Mexicans and how uh, Mexicans need to be kept in line uh, by, by uh, white natives, otherwise they'll run amok. And so in that moment, that character is uh, schooling his daughter in California racial grammar. So it, it it's it's simply what is accepted as the truth and what is never uh, never objected to. It's just the chatter, the talk, the air exactly. that we live in is the racial grammar. It's like racism Absolutely. is the air around us. 
Yeah. Yes. And it's always transmitted through social interaction. So we teach it to one another and it can happen in extremely subtle ways. And it happens in these informal ways. Yeah. Like um, a casual conversation around the dinner table, for example. There's a lot of humor in your book, even though mm-hmm. it's got a lot of <laughs> deadly, horrible things that happen in the book. But humor, as you acknowledge, is a way to deal with our most painful experiences. But what really struck me, right, like hit me on the side of the head, is that <laughs> men often use humor to cover their cruelest yeah. behavior. So can you explain what's going on when a man hurts a woman and says, oh, I was only kidding or, oh, it was only a practical joke. How is the instigator of the pain then doubly hurting the victim? So I I wrote an essay titled Slimed, in which I explore um, various uses of humor. I explore the way that those of us who are survivors of gender-based violence might rely on humor um, in order to heal, and we might use humor in, in, in therapeutic ways. And then I also explore um, the way that misogynists use humor and um, and how, like you mentioned, misogynists will sometimes use, use humor and, and, and more importantly, use attitudes toward humor and misunderstandings about humor in order to cover their tracks. And, and I think that humor is incredibly important. I don't necessarily think that the purpose of comedy humor or jokes is to evoke laughter. Well, I think that um, that that's often the goal of, of the person who's who's making the joke or deploying the humor. It, it, it doesn't, you know, those those um, those practices don't always elicit laughter. I think that what humor intends to do is really rearrange power. So um, it rearranges social space. For example, if I'm going to play a practical joke on somebody, ultimately what I'm doing is I'm dominating that moment because practical jokes rely on the element of surprise and they rely on lack of consent. And in the essay Creep, where I describe my experience of intimate partner violence, I describe the ways in which the perpetrator who harmed me often attempted to out uh, his abuse um, uh, in humor and that he would use the excuse that uh, what he was doing was a joke um, in order to to obscure the sort of injurious or harmful uh, aspects of, of what he was doing and to give a very sort of um, uh, grotesque example um, and, and I'd like to give a warning to listeners who, who don't want to hear um, an explicit description of domestic violence. Uh, one of the things that, that the perpetrator, what, the, what my perpetrator would do was um, he would often trip me while I was walking so that I would fall on, um, uh, t- to my knees. The first couple of times it happened, I fell to my knees and uh, I was very shocked that he did this. And uh, he insisted that it was that it was a prank. It was a joke and that it was a form of slapstick and that uh, that that I that I should be laughing because uh, it, it was really, really funny. And he was doing it to make himself laugh and he was doing it to make me laugh. And, and it was never funny. It was always extremely painful and humiliating. So he not only hurt you, but he then told you you didn't get the joke. So like there you on the there you are on the floor hurt. And he's saying, well, yes. you're stupid because you, you didn't stupid. get the joke. 
I'm stupid and I'm humorless also because I remember one time he he uh, chastised me for uh, being a humorless feminist. That if I weren't a feminist, maybe I would have a better sense of humor about being tripped. Hmm. Yeah. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood on WOMR. Today we're talking about the multifaceted concept of creeps. My guest is award-winning author Miriam Gerber. Her new book is Creep, Accusations and Confessions. Miriam, one of the most moving stories in the book is about your cousin Desiree. Can you talk about her life and what she was forced to go through and how her life might have gone differently had she been listened to and treated more justly? Absolutely. Um, The essay Locas, which is about my cousin Desiree, is very different, I think, from the other essays in the collection because that essay was commissioned by her. She came to me and told me to write that essay. And I had to say yes to her. Um, She and I... Um, or, or the two of us, um, as, as girls, when we were about 12 or 13 years old, formed our own gang and we called it pocas, pero locas, which means the few, but insane. <laughs> <laughs> so we were Very a two girl gang and we wanted nobody else to join our gang. And, um, and as we, as we matured and as we developed our, our paths very, very dramatically diverged, I became a teacher and a writer and she became criminalized and was incarcerated in various jails and prisons. Uh, and all together, the time that she served, uh, was about 15 years. Um, and my cousin, um, my cousin urged me to write this essay about her because according to the public record, um, she's nothing but a criminal. Crime reporters have written about her. And then uh, the state of California uh, has has criminalized her. And and those documents, those state documents, as well as um, as well as what crime reporters have written about her, tell a minuscule part of her story. And she wanted her humanity restored to her. And um, and when she told me to write her story, I could not deny her because. As far as I'm concerned, I'm still a member of Focas Pero Locas, <laughs> and I and I do what my co-gangsters tell me. So, <laughs> so, so I wrote my cousin's story for her, and and I attempted to to um to to show who she who she truly is. And my cousin is a survivor of childhood of child sexual abuse, um, and that is what started her on the path. Uh, toward criminalization and what um, urged her toward gang life, which she wanted was safety. And um, the only group of people who offered that to her in this very sort of strong material way, um, the only people that offered that belonged to a gang. And so she accepted, she accepted their offer of safety. And I think that when my cousin was a child and had the courage to report what was happening to her because she did, had, had her um, truth been honored, her, her life would have taken a very different turn. <laughs> Okay, there's a chapter in the book that's an absolute riot, 
And (laughs) when I first read it, I, of course, didn't know who you were talking about because you gave us the woman's proper name. So I want you to tell us about Lorena Leonor Gallo and why women all (laughs) over the world who may know her by her married name view her as a folk hero or even a folk saint. Yeah, so so I I I wrote a piece invoking uh, Lorena Leonor Gallo as as a folk saint, and 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 I pair her with Saint Rita, and Saint Rita is uh, the patron saint of battered women, of abused women, and I think that's very important for those of us who have been in the position of battered women to have a patron saint to appeal to. But I also figure that we need somebody um, uh, to whom we can appeal who fought back and who won, and I'm. Um, Lorena is 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 that figure for me, and um, she's she's much more familiar to people as um, Lorena Bobbitt, although uh, she reverted to her unmarried name after she uh, divorced um, the man who had been her husband and and who had abused her uh, viciously. And uh, when I was um, when I was uh, let's see in junior high school and then later on in high school no actually when i was in high school she um uh she she gained notoriety for um for severing her abuser's genitals and um and discarding them in a uh, next to a 711 <laughs> <laughs> I, I I can't help but laugh that like no I know it's, it, it it was an incredibly heroic and horrific act but but yes. in the context that you yes. tell it because it's not always been told how her husband abused her and how she was absolutely. treated absolutely absolutely and so uh, I I remember being you know a teenage girl and. And and watching sort of the way that the media treated her and then watching the way that my peers, like fellow teenagers, sort of discussed the the case. And I remember, you know, um, boys my own age describing her as if she she were the devil herself, because how could she do how could she commit this act? And uh, and they and they seemed especially horrified that she was a migrant woman who had committed this act. And I and also there were um, there were men who were interviewed uh, and asked, you know, sort of sort of like uh, uh Joe Schmo on the street being asked, you know, what are your thoughts on, on on this case, and what are your thoughts on 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 the accusations that she's made toward her husband? Because uh, 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 she argued that she uh, took action against him um, in self defense because he he had sexually assaulted her, that he had raped her, and there were so many men who were baffled by the idea that uh, that a man could assault his own wife which suggests that there are a fair number of men living among us who believe that uh, a man can do whatever he wishes with his wife, um, that it is impossible to assault one's wife. And so um, that experience uh, 
that experience was, was almost like a hazing ritual for me as a teenager. It really, really, really schooled me in U.S. misogyny. Last question. Um, uh-huh. You tell in the, la- in the last chapter called Creed, mm-hmm. you tell the story of, I mean, it, it is a very, very painful chapter to read. It's yeah. a very painful chapter even to talk about. But at the end, you say that one of the ways that you got through three years of incredible abuse was, mm-hmm. was by not only writing a book, but reading. Just so, just yeah. tell us in 30 seconds what it was like <laughs> to find safety in literature for you. So for me, when I was experiencing IPV, intimate partner violence, I became incredibly isolated. And one of the few havens that was left to me was my imagination. My imagination was one of the few places where my perpetrator could not follow me and attack me. And so I found refuge in books and I read a lot of philosophy. And in retrospect, I realized that I was attempting to understand my predicament philosophically. And that was why I was so strongly attracted to philosophy, especially political philosophy, because I think that intimate partner violence is 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 a political predicament. And um, and writing was also um, something that my that my abuser couldn't twist. And so writing became became my haven. It became my cocoon. Well, I just want to thank you for talking with us, for being for just being so open and honest. And your book is is an incredible experience. My guest today has been writer and artist Miriam Gerba. I want to thank Maddie Dunn for his tech work on the show. Creep was recently published by Avid Reader Press, a division of Simon & Schuster. This is Ira Wood with the lowdown on safety, fear, and power. One interview at a time. Bye for now. 